Part Two of The Ambulance Made Two Trips by Murray Leinster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Two. Dishonest. Fitzgerald's face was purplish from many memories of wrongs. There was a guy named Burdock who owned this business before you. You know what happened to him? Yes, said Brink. He's my brother-in-law. Connors or somebody insisted on having a share of the business and threatened dreadful things if he didn't. He didn't. So acid got spilled on clothes, machinery got smashed, once a whole delivery truckload of clothes disappeared, and my brother-in-law had to pay for any number of suits and dresses. It got him down. He's recovering from the nervous strain now, and my sister, uh, asked me to help out. So I offered to take over. He warned me I'd have the same trouble. And you've got it, fumed the detective. But anyhow, you'll make a complaint. We'll get out some warrants, and we'll have something to go on. But nothing's happened to complain about, said Brink quite reasonably. One broken window's not worth a fuss. But something's going to happen, insisted the detective. That guy Big Jake is poison. He's taken over the whole town, bit by bit bit. You've been lucky so far. But your luck could run out." Frank shook his head. No, he said matter-of-factly. I'm grateful to you, Mr. Fitzgerald, but I have a special kind of luck. I won't tell you about it because you wouldn't believe, but, but I can give you some of it. If you don't mind, I will. He went to the slightly dusty, partly plastic machine. On its shelf were some parts of metal and some of transparent plastic and some grayish granular substance it was hard to identify. There was an elaborate diagram of something like an electronic circuit inside, but it might have been a molecular diagram from organic chemistry. Brink made an adjustment and pressed firmly on a special part of the machine, which did not yield at all. Then he took a slip of plastic out of a slot in the bottom. You can call this a good luck charm, he said pleasantly or a talisman. Actually, it's a psionic unit. One like it works very well for me. Anyhow, there's no harm in it. Just one thing. If your eyelids start to twitch, you'll be headed for danger or trouble or something unpleasant. So if they do twitch, stop and be very, very careful, please." He handed the bit of plastic to Fitzgerald, who took it without conscious volition. Then Brink said briskly, "'If there isn't anything else—' "'You won't swear out a warrant against Big Jake?' demanded Fitzgerald bitterly. "'I haven't any reason to,' said Brink amiably. "'I'm doing all right. He hasn't harmed me. I don't think he will.' "'Okay,' said the detective bitterly. "'Have it your way. But he's got it in for you, and he's going to keep trying until he gets you, and whether you like it or not—' You're going to have some police protection as soon as I can set it up." He stamped out of the cleaning and drying plant. Automatically he put the bit of plastic in his pocket. He didn't know why. He got into his car and drove downtown. As he drove he looked suspiciously at his pipe. He fumed. As he fumed he swore. He did not like mysteries. But there was no mystery about his dislike for Big Jake Connors. He turned aside from the direct route to headquarters to indulge it. He 
drove to a hospital where four out-of-town hoods had been carried two days before. He marched inside and up to a second-floor corridor door with a uniformed policeman seated outside it. Mm. Donnelly, he growled, how about those guys? Not so good, said the patrolman. They're getting better. They would, growled Fitzgerald. A lawyer's been up to see him twice, said the policeman. He's coming back after lunch. He would, grunted the detective. They went out, said the cop. <laughs> I'm not surprised, said Detective Sergeant Fitzgerald. He went into the sick room. There were four patients in it, none of them looking exactly like gentle invalids. There were two broken noses of long-ago dates, three cauliflower ears, and one scar of a kind that is not the result of playing lawn-tennis. Two were visibly bandaged, and the others adhesive-taped. All of them looked at Fitzgerald without cordiality. "'Well, well, well,' he said. "'You fellows still here.' There was silence. "'In union there is strength,' said Fitzgerald. As long as you stay in one room, everybody's sure the others haven't started ratting, right?" One of the four snarled silently at him. "'It was just an accident,' pursued the detective. "'You four guys are riding along, peaceable, merrily taking the air, when quite inadvertently one of you almost blows the head off of another, and he's so astonished at there being a gun in the car that he wrecks it. And when they get you guys in the hospital, there ain't one of you knows anything about four sawed-off shotguns and a tommy gun in the car with you. Strange, strange, strange. Four faces regarded him with impassive dislike. The bandaged ones were prettier than the ones that weren't. That tommy gun business, explained Fitzgerald, is a federal affair. It's against Fed law to carry him around loaded, and your friend, Big Jake, hasn't been leaving presents on the White House steps. You know, you guys could be in trouble." Three pairs of eyes and an odd one—the other was hidden under a bandage—stared at him stonily. "'You see,' explained Fitzgerald again, "'Big Jake slipped up. He hasn't realized it yet. It's my little secret. A week ago I thought he had me licked. But something happened, and today I felt like I had to come around and congratulate you fellows. You got a break. You're going to have free board and lodging for years to come. I wanted to be the first to tell you." He beamed at them, and then went out. Outside his expression changed. He said bitterly to the cop at the door, I bet they beat this rap. He went downstairs and out of the hospital. He started around the building to his car. His eyelid twitched. It twitched again, began to quiver and flutter continuously. Fitzgerald stopped short to rub the offending eye. There was a crash. A heavy glass water pitcher hit the cement walk immediately before him. It broke into a million pieces. He glared up. The pitcher would have hit him if it hadn't been for a twitching eyelid that had brought him to a stop. The window of the room he'd just left was open, but there was no way to prove that a patient had gotten out of bed to heave the pitcher, and it had been broken into too many pieces to offer fingerprint evidence. Ha! said Fitzgerald morosely. 
They're plenty confident. He went to headquarters. There were more memos for his attention. One was just in. A cab had crossed the sidewalk and crashed into a plate-glass window. Its hydraulic brakes had failed. The trouble was a clean saw cut in a pressure line. Fitzgerald went to find out about it. The cab driver bitterly refused to answer any questions. He wouldn't even admit that he was not insured by Big Jake against such accidents. Fitzgerald stormed. The owner-driver firmly and gloomily refused to answer a question about whether he'd been threatened if he didn't pay protection money. Fitzgerald raged on the sidewalk beside the cab in the act of being extracted from the plate-glass window. An open-mouthed bystander listened admiringly to his language. Then the detective's eyelid twitched. It twitched again violently. Something made him look up. An employee of the plate-glass company—there were rumors that Big Jake was interesting himself in the plate-glass insurance beside cabs— wrenched loose a certain spot. Fitzgerald grabbed the bystander and leaped. There was a musical crash behind him. A tall section of the shattered glass fell exactly where he had been standing. It could have been pure accident. On the other hand, he couldn't prove anything, but he had a queer feeling as he left the scene of the crash. Back in his own car, he felt chilly. Driving away presently, he felt his eyelid tentatively. He wasn't a nervous man. Ordinarily his eyelids didn't twitch. He went to investigate a second memo. It was a restaurant, and he edged the police car gingerly into a lane beside the building. In the rear the odor of spilled beer filled the air. It would have been attractive but for an admixture of gasoline fumes and the fact that it was mud. Mud whose moisture content is spill-beer has a peculiar smell all its own. He got out of his car and gloomily asked the questions the memo called for. He didn't need to. He could have written down all the answers in advance. The restaurant, now reporting vandalism, had found Big Jake's brand of beer unpopular. It had twenty cases of a superior brew brought in by motor truck. It was stacked in a small building behind the café. For one happy evening the customers chose their own beer. Now, next day, there were eighteen cases of smashed beer bottles. The crime had been committed in the small hours. There were no clues. The restaurant proprietor unconvincingly declared that he had no idea who'd caused it but he'd only notified the police so he could collect insurance, not for Big Jake. With a sort of morbid, frustrated gloom, Detective Sergeant Fitzgerald made the necessary notes. He put his notebook in his pocket and backed his car out of the alley. Oddly enough, he thought of a beautifully carved meerschaum pipe he'd found with the milk that morning. He'd presented it to an orphanage mainly because, irrationally, he'd have liked to keep it. There had been other expensive gifts he'd have liked to keep. Bourbon, a set of expensive dry flies, an eight-millimeter movie camera, scotch, shiny, smooth silk socks that would have soothed his weary feet. 
He'd denied himself these gifts because he believed, he knew, that they came from Big Jake, who tactfully won friends and influenced people by making presents and denying it. In business matters he was stern, because that was the way to collect protection money. But he was subtle with cops. He had their wives on his side. Sergeant Fitzgerald growled in his throat. He'd always wanted a really fine meerschaum pipe. He'd had one this morning, and he'd had to get rid of it because it came from Big Jake. He felt that Big Jake had robbed him of it. He turned the police car and drove back toward the Elite Cleaners and Dyers establishment. As he drove, he growled. His eyelid had twitched twice, and each time he'd been heading into danger or trouble. The fact was dauntingly coincidental with Brink's comment about giving him a scrap of plastic from the bottom of that crazy machine. These things were on his mind. He couldn't bring himself to plan to mention them, but he needed to talk to Brink again. Brink could testify to threats. He could justify arrests. Sergeant Fitzgerald had a fine conviction that with a chance to apply pressure he could make some of Big Jake's hoods and collectors talk, and so bust things wide open. He only needed Brink's cooperation. He drove toward the elite cleaners and dyers to put pressure on Brink toward that happy end, but he brooded over his own eyebrow-twitchings. When the cleaning establishment came into view there was a car parked before it. Two men from that car were in the act of entering the elite plant through the same door the detective had used earlier. He parked his car behind the other. Fuming, he crossed the sidewalk and entered the building. As he entered, he heard a scream from the back. He heard a crashing sound and more screams. He bolted ahead, through the outer office and into the working area he had not visited before. He burst through swinging doors into a two-story, machinery-filled cleaning and dyeing plant. Tables and garment racks and five separate people appeared as proper occupants of the place. But something had happened. There was a flood of liquid detergent solution flowing toward the open back doors of the big room. It obviously came from a large carboy which had been smashed as if to draw attention to some urgent matter. The people in the room seemed to have frozen at their work, except that Brink had apparently been interrupted in some supervisory task. He was not working at any machine to clean, dye, dry, or press clothing. He looked at the two individuals whom Fitzgerald had seen enter only fractions of a minute earlier. His jaw clenched and Fitzgerald was close enough behind the bottle-breakers to see him take an angry, purposeful step toward them. Then he checked himself very deliberately, and put his hands in his pockets and watched. After an instant he even grinned at the two figures who had preceded the detective. They were an impressive pair. They were dressed in well-pressed garments of extravagantly fashionable cut, they wore expensive soft hats tilted to jaunty angles. Even from the rear Fitzgerald knew that handkerchiefs would show tastefully in the breast pockets of their coats. Their shoes had been polished until they not only shone but glittered. 
But by professional instinct Fitzgerald noted one cauliflower ear, and the barest fraction of a second later he saw a squat revolver being waved negligently at the screaming women. He reached for his service revolver, and things happened. End of Part Two